This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by FanQuest, happening June 22nd and 23rd at the Red River College Exchange District Campus. Come meet Claire Marshall, Claire C. Marshall, rather, uh, author of Year and Sea, which is the first novel set in the Silent Guardians universe, and uh, and uh, Greg and Justin will be there as well. Um, you can Ouch. get... <laughs> Whatever. Uh, you can see all our guests and all the things happening at fanquestcon.com. Tickets available there as well. Attention, citizens. It's time for Super Pope Science. Hello, this is... Super Pulp Science, where I'm staring intently across the table at producer Dan. Dan and I are hosting the podcast today. Say hello, Dan. Hello, Dan. Um, this is a little intimidating. You have your arms folded. You have like... My body language is not very inviting right now. Yeah, not very I don't know why. I'm doing, I should have some of my lovely oat milk latte that you brought me. Brought to you by Parlor, yep. who we one day hope to convince to be our sponsor. <laughs> that would be great. Our caffeination every, sponsor. Every week you buy me Parlor coffee. It's true. It's delicious. And, uh, and yeah, we should absolutely have them sponsor the podcast. That's great We're idea. giving them free advertising right now. Huh. Interesting. Um, Dan. Yes. I have a question for you. Tell it to me straight. Did you like the play or did you not like I it? I liked it a lot. Dan and I have not spoken at all yet since he went to see Red Earth. Which yeah. Is now I saw it on Thursday night. Um, there was a respectable crowd there. I would say, like, hey, well, question I have for you. You know, the, the, and we can talk about this because the spoilers, like, it'll probably show again at some point, but not. Yeah, it's over anytime. now. So it's, it's, it's over it's now. So it's, spoiler so, cap lifted. Okay. Um, so when you go, when you walk in, there's kind of three main sections of seating at the Perry Theater Exchange, and you guys had, had covered two of those sections with white. Um, That's right. Was that always like that, or did you have that all open for when it was? Fuller, no, it was full. always like that. Okay. So we intentionally, because of the way the projection was, we wanted to... Have people looking straight on, right? Well, yeah. straight on or also, you know, like we had kind of, I don't know, I'd say about 30 degrees. Like the the way that the Prairie Theatre Exchange uh, Theatre is. Uh, and we're going to have Andrea and Gwen and Alicia and a few other people on the podcast to talk about the, ex- the behind-the-scenes experience, mm-hmm. which I even learned stuff about. But it's kind of uh, a 180, like the, where the crowd can normally sit. Yes. We restricted that and covered the seating. Um, the production designer, the idea was that uh, when it's lit right, it will look like stone, like the mountains, like the Martian rocks. Yep. And when it's lit another way, you'll see that it's obviously crumpled paper cast across and the idea was that it's like the cast off paper of the main character's writings oh sort of the high-minded idea one of those details that it doesn't matter if anyone notices yeah i didn't i didn't notice that but that's okay it looked cool it did look cool when it was it was when the lighting was red it looked like the surface of mars that that's and certainly during the, the main scene that involves that part of the uh the uh, stands, whatever. I'm getting ahead of myself. Anyway, the um, the crowd. I would say it was it was almost a sellout. It was pretty close. Um, yeah, we had a lot of real close to sellout. Yeah, crowds, yeah. yeah. So it was a good amount of people there, and um, everyone seemed to really enjoy it. I, I I love the. I have to ask this this way. You guys have done this projection, right? Has anybody else done that before? Not like what? Not like the way we've done it. Now, yeah, I've never seen anything like that. Before. We are. We would not claim to be the first people to do projection on the theater stage. Uh, as soon as the technology reached the point where it was portable and affordable for theaters to use projection, 
they started using projection. Yeah, I mean that's and, a really good way to to have like lower cost sets. And and Andrea has used that before. She did a play, uh, directed a play, Twenty Thousand Leagues, an adaptation of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Right. That eventually made it onto Broadway, down in New York City, uh, and it used projection simply as set pieces. What we tried to do was create projection that was not just oh here's so that we don't need a set or we can do a quick change of a set through projection, but instead. Uh, environments that the actors would interact with and react to and we had four projectors two rear and two forward projectors that cast across scrims that were enfolding the actors could create three-dimensional environments um, a typical play what it did is it, and so we created all original musical cues all original um, visuals for the play which is also not a done thing with projection often when you use projection you're you know you're pulling from archive footage or you're right. from photography or whatever yeah we made we sort of made everything ourselves so a typical play as i understand it uh has anywhere between 150 and maybe 300 cues right and a cue being like when the sound or the light or the set change or you know all the things that uh that audience takes for granted there was maybe right through you know there's maybe 300 of those typically we had 1200 oh my god i believe it yeah with all yeah. those different things and the use of cameras so so just to describe this a little bit better so for example the the instrument panel they're on a um colony on uh, mars which is a bunch of technology and and so they have like instrument panel with with screens much of the same way you would see in any other science fiction movie or yeah. tv show so there's a view screen you see somebody on the other side of the view screen you use cameras in a really cool way when somebody is like making their log um the actor is facing away from the audience they're looking at the instrument panel but the 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 video of it comes up on the other side so you can see their face right. straight which on real time we had yeah it was real time yeah. it was really really cool and i was i was like is that real time or is she just like syncing it up i tried to figure that out but it was a live camera yeah there was no recorded video yeah at all so, there was a lot of things that a lot of people who saw the show were like oh they must have pre-recorded that how could you possibly do that any other way but we were actually live yeah it was really well done all that stuff was amazing so i'm really and the, I, I can see the possibilities are endless with this kind of thing like it's really um it was i've never seen first of all I've never seen a science fiction story told on stage before, like in a play form. I think it's rare. Um, yeah, it's, it, but but it works, and that's yeah. maybe the reason is because you can't make it work convincingly with, you know, regular sets. But you guys did it in a way that it works, and it was convincing, and it, it felt like you were there. So I think one of the things about theater, um, which will always remain true, is that you can do anything convincingly without a set. Like the sort of the oh sure the thrust of theater is right that, you know with one person chair, on stage black light, black yeah. background single spotlight they could be anywhere right. if they if they themselves are convincing what we tried to do um, and um, in some instances I think our ambition uh, overreached our grasp that's definitely true but mm. what we tried to do was have the environments um, not interrupt the actors. Mm -hmm. So rather than, oh, wow, there's some pizzazz happening, isn't that cool? And then you ignore the performance. Yeah. We tried to make holes in our um, sort of fanciful world that we created that would allow the actors to shine through with their performance. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I think uh, we, like having seen it now, you know, I went to see it six times mm -hmm. to watch it. It ran for 10 days. Uh, and I saw lots of different performances from lots of different angles in the theater. And, and I realized there are a lot of things that what we can do 
to amplify performance. That's okay. what I really realized. Like yeah. we were we were doing a thing that hadn't been done. Mm -hmm. We tried a whole bunch of stuff that worked really well, um, but like anything, once you once you're finished, you know, it's just like making a book. You make the book, then you find the things that you might have done differently, and you try to apply that to the next book you make. Right. Right. So same with this. We yeah. have this sort of baseline now for the technology we can use, and um, I was really, you know. Uh, CBC came and uh, we got some national coverage yep. for it. We got a lot of local coverage for it. Uh, it was the front page of the Uptown. We had uh, good reviews from people who uh, traditionally give theater very poor reviews. <laughs> uh, so we, I think what we did was um, really succeed in trying something new and appealing to uh, some non-standard theater audiences yep. with our format and our storytelling. Yeah, but then we tried to also. I, I use the we sort of uh, loosely here. What Andrea was really after doing, uh, who uh, Andrea Sardison, who was the director, um, incorporating what traditional theater is great at and what this new technology gives us a reach for, and try to sort of smash those two things together. Yeah. Um, so it was a really humbling and and uh, singular experience. The first time in a long time where I've had that many people collectively put aside, um, I guess the only way to say it is to put aside their ego in service of the project. Okay. Right. And we have, you know, when you bring in that many people, you bring in actors, you bring in sound designers, you bring in lighting people, you bring in uh, a director, you bring in a, you know, loudmouth graphic novelist. <laughs> you have all of these people, and you have two playwrights who are very skilled and very good at what they do. Mm -hmm. You have this moment where someone should stand their ground and say, no, it's this way, mm -hmm. because I know better. But because we were all sort of stitching this weird hybrid thing together, there was no way for someone to say, there wasn't. There was no room for someone to say, well, clearly this is the way we should do it. Right. So, so instead, everyone was like, well, I'm going to do my part the best I can and bring it to the table. And then Andrea is going to piece it all together into a new thing. Um, it'll be interesting to see now that we all feel like we've figured it out. Um, if we collaborate it all again, can we be as in service to the idea right that's yeah the, yeah because you were again everyone was so um and everyone had bought into the idea of doing this for the first time and that that's was kind right. of the exciting part of it and now that you've done it for the first time just just doing it again or doing yeah. something similar again or, yeah. or that kind of thing so well, wait, or you can find something new to do for the first time yeah well yeah and when was the last time you did something for the first time right yet? there is an inexorable force in the cosmos where time and space converge another thing for me that was really poignant about the whole thing is um, when you okay so by contrast when you make when I make a book and it's even if I'm working on it with uh, another collaborator you break up with it by yourself right it's finished you're done you hand your piece off then it gets its public presentation and by the time the book is in the public sphere you have likely at least in my case I have usually gone on to begin work on something else right so my heart now is in a way safe because it's already reinvested somewhere and so else by the time it gets in front of critics and stuff you're you're detached enough from it would yeah, you say you're that? Detached enough or objective enough to yeah. be like you know what that critic is 100 percent right right <laughs> okay. i have enough space to realize like yeah right. totally dropped the ball there or or even if you disagree 
it's already happening, yeah. right? Like movement gives shape to form. You're already onto something else. But uh, theater every night is new. Mm-hmm. Every performance is slightly different. The energy of the actors is slightly different. The cues are all live, so that also has a different. It's not like watching the same episode of a show again. Yeah. Right. 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 And the, you know, it's like that moment if you've ever been to the circus where the trapeze artists sometimes they make it appear like they're falling, so that yeah. you as the audience go. <gasps> right. Do people still go to the circus. Uh, yeah. Okay. I go. To the, I like the circus. You don't like the circus. Are you talking about Cirque du Soleil? Or are you yeah, talking? About, okay. That's well, the circus. Okay. It just doesn't have. Think about like a shrine circus when we were kids. No. I don't think that that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that there are these moments where, because. If you know the material really well, as I did, because we were there during rehearsals and, and writing it and uh, sort of conceiving it, uh, when the actor's energy changes the direction, however slightly, of the whole scene and everybody there reacts to that and moves along with it and you get this performance that is as true and as original, but not the one you remember from right. last time. Yeah. Right? That was a, an emotional experience I wasn't um, totally prepare, prepared for. Like, I love theater, and I've gone to lots of plays, and I taught theater, but there's a difference in uh, seeing someone else's work. And how do you engage with theater? Usually, uh, as an educator, is you show someone a recording of the same play over and over and over again. So it has this quality that we have come to expect from video, mm-hmm. whereas a live production is so much more engaging. And then, so you have this whole thing, and then it's over. Mm-hmm. And everyone you have all this, you know, we had 30 people work on this show, and everyone is there. It's like uh, the end of high school, where everyone is like, oh, yeah, we'll be friends forever. Right? Mm-hmm. But no, you won't. No. Like, you want to be. Yeah. You have your best intentions, but life is going to pull you in another direction. And the people who work in theater, it was, it was interesting to watch and think about and reflect upon. They go through this every few months. They get so the nature of the work, right? Super, yep. yeah, close knit with a really, um, you know, they have to trust completely that it will work, mm-hmm. and then they have to break up with it completely. And wow, that was um, that was a wild thing. Cool. Well, congratulations. It was a great show. Thank you very Had much. Had a lot of fun. Um, trying to think of any constructive criticism. I don't really have any. It was. I mean, you guys probably know the things that may may have worked or didn't work. Oh yeah, work we, or, have a, we have a list. Sure, have a list of things. Yeah, but but it was like uh, for me, it was. Um, it, it it's interesting how it's still kind of had the same problems that any other piece of science fiction has in that you have to explain the science, mm-hmm. which is tough. Yeah, it's and it, it, I don't know how you can solve it. It's it's a problem that's faced science fiction writers for since the beginning of the genre. But like, you have to spend some time on, um, what's the word? Um, it's exposition. Exposition, yeah. which is kind of boring and isn't always fun yeah. to listen to. Yeah. But you have to explain it because otherwise you won't understand what's happening. Well, there right? is a, okay. So this will this I'm going to bring it into your house now for a okay. second. All right. Um, so there's a difference I think between science fiction and space opera oh okay so star wars a lot of people say oh that's a science fiction no it's not i agree no, with you not. yeah i get it yeah they spend zero time trying to establish science at all no that star goes here this not. goes there that's yeah. the that's, that's the yeah that's the sign and and great that's part i love of it it's genre, so good yeah right um whereas if you use science fiction the idea is that you're basing it on you might you know, there might be fantastical elements, but you're basing it on a scientific principle that is provable. 
Right. Or, right. or at least plausible. Right. And so science fiction is, um, you know, it is a degree, not a category. And so some people, you know, like your Larry Nivens of the world, mm -hmm. uh, who are interested in a little bit harder science fiction, um, but are from an era where, you know, still everyone smoked and was a misogynist. Right. Yeah. So you have to take those stories with a grain of salt, whereas you have, um, you know, sort of the new school of science fiction is, I think, light on the science. Right. And is closer to the space opera in that it's interested in using um, magic by another name. Yeah. Right. To yeah. Show off things, which is just as entertaining, but oh, sure. um, has a different mindset. You know. Right. So, what were you guys going for? Were you going for space opera? So we wanted. I. Th there was some science so stuff the in there. First act, I think, was science fiction. Yes, and and that's what I mean. Yeah. And the second act was space opera. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I I can concur with that. Right. Yeah. Because there was a lot of things we did not care to explain by the time we got to the second act, but we felt like, um, uh, you know, Rick and Christian did such a great job in incorporating the the techno babble you know borrowing from a star trek yeah, yeah, term yeah. here um but we were trying to use real science we were talking about real genetics and we were talking about real epigenetics and we were talking about all this stuff which while we can't accomplish yet is theoretically possible right uh we tried to have that set up in a realistic way but then be motivated by character mm -hmm. right like to have a workplace environment where everyone is competent not really over explaining to each other because why would they be in the job if they had to explain it to each other? Right. And instead, um, Rick and Christian came up with these great reasons for them to argue about the science. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you have one character, so by way of example, dear listener, uh, one thing that they did expertly well was have the one character who is the expert and the one character who has an agenda. And the expert and the agenda, the expertise and the agenda, strike against each other. And that forces exposition, where the person who says, hey, listen, we planned it this way. Why are you changing our plan? Now it forces the character to explain in a realistic way why they must change the plan according to the science. Mm -hmm. Right? And that's a way you can fit in exposition into your science fiction writing that doesn't feel like um, paragraphs out of a textbook. Right. I got you. Know? you. Yeah. Um, and it's what, uh, you know, if we use uh, Star Trek and Star Wars, right, the two parenthetical things that are often brought up, Star Trek is ostensibly also a space opera because cool. most of the, they don't really, they use terms that are scientifically, um, what's the word? They have a scientific pedigree, but they usually name a person as the solution to a scientific problem that there is no solution for. We don't really know what Scotty does to make things work. He That's just right. does it. it just, right? Yeah. Scotty, I need more power. I can't do it, Captain. But yeah. he does. And we don't know how he does it. He just does. Dilithium crystals. I don't know what he does. Yeah. And if they, you know, and they talk about all kinds of matrixes and all kinds of yeah. uh, quantum to things. Me, but they're just making it up. Yeah. I mean, uh, my the best techno babble person is Jordy LaForge. LeVar Burton was just so good at it and he was right. so good at making it sound convincing in Star Trek The Next Generation and I think that a lot of that was improvised 
I hope so. I think it was like like Levar he. Burton, I like. Him. He so I just. just want, I want apocryphal stories of him being great. Well, I think that I think I think I read that somewhere where a lot of that kind of stuff, like they had terms, they kind of understood like the basics of what they're doing, and then they would just throw this stuff together, and, and it was it sounded good, so they kept it kind of just thing. wing it. Sometimes. Anyway, yeah. Um, whereas like a film like Interstellar, that really right? tries to get the science right. Tries to get the science right. If they still like they bend it to like it it bends. Uh, according to credulity, right? Like well, there's a certain amount that people don't understand and don't want to believe, and they once it gets beyond that point when you're talking about space-time curves, right? Just show us something interesting, and we'll call it even. That madman is headed straight for the black hole. I have a question about the plot. Earth is dying. They've sent this is the third mission to Mars in like 60 years or something like that, over a 60-year time span. Yeah, something give or like take. That. Yeah. Um, so, but they only have like the resources are limited, so they sent three people up there to genetically modify humans so that they can breathe on Mars. Okay, so first of all, the first mission is an enormous mission. They right. said 3,000 Colonizers. People. There, it's like yeah. a major force, and there is, uh, you know, there's this horrible catastrophe. Everyone dies. So then they send a smaller mission uh, with a similar um, agenda, and that one also doesn't work. So in a sort of a last-ditch effort, rather than send colonizers, they send kind of an a genetic arc like right the capacity to maybe restart so did you guys now to me that seems like a controversial subject but Super it doesn't get yeah. it does not like there's no question in their mind here like i i feel like there would have been a debate at some point of, of uh, is it pro, is it right to grow and genetically modify human beings kind of thing like that right, seems so, like one of those quite you see a whole movie about just that topic yeah there were a number of things that we knew um and you know it was very gratifying to uh, myself and I'm sure to the playwrights and to Andrea, the number of people who came up to us after with these questions. Right. Right? Is it, okay, so for the dear listener, some of the things that we did in the story was we simply said that um, genetic manipulation is possible, that they can genetically edit, and that they have the technology that over a course of a few generations, you could adapt the human genome to another environment. Possible, who wasn't really, doesn't matter to us. It was uh, plausible enough for the purpose of the story. They have the science in the the era that this is in, which is about 100 years in the future. And if if you knew that your planet was dying, would you be okay with not anyone from your planet surviving, but the species altered into another form on another place? Yeah. That was kind of the idea. Yeah. Um, And then we also had this idea that each of these people who have done, who have undertaken this mission, carry with them much more than they ever believed they were bringing. All their biases, all their fears, all their um, complicated family histories, all the stuff that actually weighs down as humankind, they carried all the way to a distant world, and it's what causes the conflict that ultimately you know, destroys them. Yeah. Um, is that, you know, we can't, if we can't let go of the burden of our past, how can we make a new future? I mean, yeah. the f- opening line of the play and the closing line of the play are the same, which is, um, you know, uh, s- focuses around the idea that we have to decide on our past and decide on our future. And that was sort of what we were after. And, you know, it was also a little bit meta because... Andrea works primarily in devised theater, where everyone comes together. Devised theater is different than traditional theater. In devised theater, everyone has a little bit of a voice, and everyone 
helps to create something new rather than simply do what you're told. You don't just follow like the way theater has always been. If someone has a new idea, a new technology, a new way of doing things, a physical capacity that, you know, a cast normally wouldn't have, you incorporate it into the production. Um, the person I went to the play with has a question about the reason. Okay, so there, in the play, uh, the, all the babies, all the, all the fetuses they're working with are female. Yes. Um, is that because female babies are more, more uh, are tougher than male babies or, or more hardy? Uh, okay, so it's a couple of things. One of the things we wanted to do was we wanted to, to have uh, an all-female cast. Right. Um, Except for spoiler one. alert, there's a, they find a man on Mars, right? <laughs> spoiler alert. Um, That's right. But, uh, a little bit like uh, uh, Heinlein there, eh? Stranger in a Strange Land. Yeah, a little bit, right? Yeah, and yeah. we were like boring from Heinlein. We were boring from Ray Bradbury. We were boring from... Uh, Anybody who's know, written about Mars, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. It was all in there. But um, the idea was that we also tr sat down and we had a practical discussion that, okay, let's say this technology does exist, but let's assume technology wears down and fails and you're not going to be sent any spare parts. Your first generation should all be women because if you have all this in vitro technology, then you can use that first generation as a fail safe right. if the technology breaks down. So if you want to artificially inseminate them, you can have a th another generation without the use of any super advanced genetic technology. Right. Okay. Right. That makes sense. It was the just. But she the was. Idea yeah. That, no. She was of the opinion that for some. I think she said babies, female babies are are. I don't know. Tougher. Than um, males. I don't know if that's true or not. I, I guess don't so. know. Uh, I would not speak to the science behind okay. that. Okay. I don't know. That wasn't part of our. We also were building around the idea. We really wanted. There was a joke, in the lab scene where we wanted the fertilizations to all occur, and then the male, uh, when it comes up as an XY, for it to be like a major malfunction, like, oh my mm. God, the lab is broken because we grew up male, right? <laughs> um, which would make for, a, we thought, a funny turn also. So yep. like some of it was, oh man, everyone assumes that you're trying to say a specific thing. Like, oh, you don't like men. That's why you had only women. No, it just made for a more interesting story. Work. And, and it's right. it is plausible. Like your your explanation there makes sense to me. That yeah. that seems like a valid thing. We to didn't do. need it to be um, scientifically real. We needed it to be scientifically plausible yeah. that a person could that under a certain situation you could see them make that choice. And then the other element of the story is, of course, that uh, the Artemis one, the first colony ship of three thousand people, actually wasn't destroyed. They went to Mars and started a utopia and didn't invite anyone to come along with That's them. That's right, yeah. And that the, well, they told their, and you, this is where it gets into the revisionist history, yeah. where they told everybody who grew up there that Earth had destroyed itself when That's it right. hadn't. And Earth told, now, did, now here's a question, did Earth know that they did that? So both groups, so the idea was that both governments are lying to their people, and it would be the story of those people, the Martians that the, the women meet, and the women realizing that they've been lied to right. when faced with the irrefutable truth of each other's existence, right? right? If you're here, someone's been lied to. Yeah. What is the lie? And they realize they've both been lied to, uh, and their histories have been, yeah, like you say, revised in order to create the outcome that you want. Mm -hmm. As a parent, I understand this. You don't tell, I mean, you must get this too, right? You don't tell your young child all the mistakes you've made 
and all the things, the silly things you've done wrong and all the times that you didn't listen to your parents when they're growing up, <laughs> you wait, right, a little bit until you think it will be funny and anecdotal, not <laughs> inspire them to rebel. Right. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the same kind of thing. So when our um, characters are faced with this decision of deciding what the truth is, they don't have anyone to ask, so they have to piece it together themselves and then, you know, figure it out, if you will. Mm -hmm. But the, the basic premise there, so one of the characters, our, our, our main character played by uh, Gwendolyn Collins, um, Irving, she's named after her grandfather, mm -hmm. um, is she basically contracts a deadly virus that causes her to have uh, horrible hallucinations and violent tendencies, but because she's alone, they kind of turn on herself. So all of the people who are dead from the first act show up as these horrible ghosts. And but one of them, we had a turn. So we have there's this uh, one character, Piper, uh, who is kind of like aggressive, militaristic. We have her switch completely in the second act uh, before the audience realizes that she's not really there. Um, to be kind of super supportive and kind of loving and really embracing this idea of a Martian utopia. Right, yeah. And, and our idea is that it's, of course, um, Irving's subconscious coming around to the idea, like seeing the truth herself, the way we process sometimes and come to a realization, that conversation that normally happens in our back brain, we had happen between her and another actor yeah, yeah. on stage. It was great. By the yeah. way, that was a great turn and a great reveal when you find out that she's not really alive yeah and uh, i saw like there's a moment where gwen asks the uh artificial intelligence uh janet played by uh toby oh my god you're so good yeah it's, it's so funny so good uh <laughs> you know am i sick and she drops down to her knees and she starts to cry right realizing like she's carrying this child she's alone on an alien world all the people she thinks that have survived are actually just her losing her mind uh Every time, every time I saw it, I got choked up. Mm -hmm. And she delivered that moment a little bit differently every time. So I was like, I'm ready. This time it's not going to get me. <laughs> but it would, uh, you know, the crack in her voice, the, you know, the twist of her body language, the collapse onto the stage, all of those things were a little different every time. Gravity's at maximum, Dan. Oh my God, I think it's got us. So Andrea and I have been working on this project for five years, basically. Mm, okay. On and off. Uh, not, you know, like not throughout because we both have lots of stuff going on. But one of the things that we kept doing was reevaluating the themes that we were interested in telling. And so uh, the fact that there's an Artemis One, that was our first draft. We originally thought we would tell that story. Oh, okay, interesting. And then when we abandoned it, we made it part of the history. Right. And so when we came around to a second idea, um, it also we didn't like. We did a workshop, we got actors together, we tested the technology, we wrote a script, we played it out, and the events of the Artemis II, which are mentioned in the play, was a version of the play that we had also, mm -hmm. where the Artemis II is there to destroy the colony, that the utopia, right? right, And they get destroyed by the own virus they brought. It didn't work quite right, it wasn't quite right, and then in the middle of the night, one night, I get a text from Andrea uh, that was like, nope, it's all women, <laughs> right? It will change the storytelling. Like what happens if it's all women? What happens to the dynamic? What happens to the theme? What happens to the whole notion of growing, you know, growing a new um, species if you leave men out? Like what is it? And it was really exciting to, to not 
start again every time. But right. for us to leave the history of each failed attempt at writing as part of the history of the failed missions also. And those are still stories you could tell at some point too, right? Those are still like... Yeah, potentially. Like potentially. You think, um, this, this kind of reminds me of... I mean, I'm going to bring it back to Star Wars because, you know, one of the things that Disney did when they bought Star Wars was, was quote-unquote, eliminate the um, expanded universe. Like, they call it the Legends now. It's yeah. not canon, right? Yeah. There's a huge uproar from fans about it yeah. because for decades we've had all these novels and comic books and, and video games and that kind of stuff that told Star Wars stories that now are so-called not not yeah. real yeah. um but uh the cool thing about it is that those stories still exist and they can still pull from that stuff to um when they're creating the canon materials and i talked to pablo hidalgo about that when he was here last year right. for fan quest and he said yeah it's like a first draft he yeah. says um they they um for example uh, one of the most beloved characters from the the expanded universe was uh a grand admiral thrawn oh, I love that uh and they brought him into the into canon they put made him a character on rebels so he is now part of star wars canon we could see him show up in a movie or something so that kind of right. stuff is like really cool there's no stories die they just kind of get put on a shelf for a while and then you can bring them out again well that comes around to the idea that you give people more of what's selling so you know if um if the so, like, plays have a very different life uh, than, say, a book. Although we also made a book, right? So you right. also oh. have the book. Um, but the idea is that, you know, a play... Did I take it out already? An oh, archival of the play will get sent around to festivals. Festivals will say, yes, come and mount that play here. Can you please sign my copywriter? Um, oh, sure. Yeah, you can do it. <laughs> um, I'll look at it uh, And so it might have a life of its own. But depending on where and when and how, it's different actors, it's different director, it's, you know, like you kind of, you send the package of how it's done to someone else to do. Yeah. Which is like a, exactly what you're talking about in a, in a sense that right. someone could say, no, I don't like the relationship between these characters. And they would have some freedom to say, change, alter, cut that line. You know, they, um, you're not supposed to rewrite it well, what's the point in paying for it if you're going to rewrite it? Right. But the reason you, you'd pay for it is so you don't have to write a new you play. you can, just like with music, you can do a new arrangement. Right. Right. So you so, could you could change something about a scene and make it a different, kind of have correct. a different feel or a different message. Yeah, in theory. Yeah. So it would be interesting to see what kind of life it has beyond that. Um, so if it did have a life beyond that, there would be, yeah, you, you're right. There's lots of room to expand it or grow it. Um there is also a kind of a it's kind of a great thing about a thing being finished also though sorry i'm reading the book what yeah, no i was gonna say i was saying it's <laughs> a great thing about there's a great element when something is over yes also, yes right yeah uh and i've gotten a lot of messages from people saying i'm you know i couldn't come i missed it when can I see it again? They're in that movie mentality. And I'm like, no, you can't. You can't. It's done. Yeah, it, yeah. It was there for 10 days. And you had 10 days where you could come and see it. And the labor and love of all of the people involved was there on display. But now it's over. And like smoke, you know, you can tell it was there. Yeah. But you can't see it anymore. Yeah. Right? And that is, um, you know, kind of the magic and the beauty of theater in general. Uh, would you ever consider creating a graphic novel of this story? Not not this, but like an actual, like an actual depiction yeah. of the story we see on stage. Okay, so for the dear listener who can't see what the, this is that uh, 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 Dan pointed to, so we did a, 
uh, an epistolary collection of the events of the story as a quote-unquote graphic novel for. And and it's so cool this in the play how she has this book, she's writing in this book, it's like an old technical manual or something she yeah, found she's that she's writing. writing on top of it, yeah. And then she leaves that book for her daughter, and at the end, her daughter comes to retrieve it from, from the site, because her daughter is um, the only person from the Mars colony who can go to that to the Artemis 2 because she has, she's immune to the disease is that right? That was she's, the idea yeah. she's immune created to... this idea of legacy that her child born of her right she develops antibodies as a result of, of being of, yeah. uh, of growing up <laughs> gestating if you will in that environment and so when she when uh, Irving lets her daughter go, Irving can't survive. Irving knows she can't survive. She's slowly going crazy. She puts her baby in the pod car, the bassinet in the river. You know, there's a lot of, we, we borrowed a lot of, uh, we gender bent a lot of traditional Bible motifs off yeah. also. Yeah. And we sent her only begotten daughter to the people, right? And isn't, isn't, sorry, wasn't the baby going to infect the colony though? What, what so the original plan. For, the, for this is a spoiler section. We've been talking spoilers the whole so time. So we've been talking about the lies. So they believe they were there to start a new colony, a genetic arc. Yes. Unfortunately, they have not been told the whole truth. All of the babies that and all the epigenetic material that they've been sent with contains um, a hidden bacterial virus hidden inside each cell that should they make contact with the Martian colony they will be able to passively overcome them simply by their interaction. Yes. Right? Which is what happened Meet, to... Which uh, is what happens in human history. Right, 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 right. So they bioengineer a way to make sure that once they meet the Martians and meet that utopian colony, that colony and all of its resources will quickly become theirs because they'll die just from meeting them. Um, but it all, you know, comes out a little too soon. It doesn't work quite the way, you know... Uh, uh, how does the expression go? Man plans and uh, the gods laugh. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so the, you know, it doesn't quite work out. And Irving ends up sick. Uh, she also ends up uh, impregnated uh, with her own technologies and so has a daughter, chooses to give birth to a daughter. And that daughter, who is now immune to these viruses that the human colonies can send, she sends to the Martians. Um, so that she'll survive, number one, yeah. but also in the hopes that maybe it will give them the te the technology latent in her genes to themselves become immune. Okay, right. so that's that's ten that's what happened then. Yeah. Okay. In Interesting. Theory. Yeah. In theory. And so then it's twenty years later. The last scene of the play is, of course, twenty years later, where the daughter. It was our surprise. Uh, new cast member you know, yeah. we had, um, shows up on stage and um, picks up the book and that is the book that the audience is given also so when they're like oh what's the book that she's got I wish I knew what was in it everyone gets everyone it. gets a copy yeah. yeah it was great it was great yeah very well done um, it'll be interesting for me to see uh, reactions to the story itself absent the play right so I'll oh, be yeah. taking this book on the road and um, I'm going to be talking to a few uh, there's a publisher that might be interested in maybe picking it up just as a as a book book. Yep. Um, not as an adaptation of the play. My question is, would yeah. you ever do an adaptation of the play? Like a direct adaptation? Yeah. <sighs> or is it just meant to be told that way and that's it? Yeah, I wonder. No. Okay. My first instinct is to say no. Right. Because um, why? 
for those who missed it. <laughs> right, exactly, right? Like, go to the thing. It's like, um, can you please write down your summary of the album you just listened to so that I can also enjoy the uh, right. album okay. via yeah. your summary? Yeah, right? I got gotcha. you. Yeah. It's not quite the same. Now, if there was, um, like, a great call for some adaptation, what's interesting is that because we're talking about revisionist history, like this book also revises the history. It's the story that Irving is willing to tell her daughter. Right. It's not the whole story. Yeah. Right? So if we were able to play with that trope, that, you know, the version that you would see in the graphic novel would be different than the version you'd see on stage, then, you know, a person could be convinced, maybe. It's a really good story. Like, it's a really... I love the story. It's such a... So compelling and, and uh, such an interesting idea. And I, I, I mean, I guess for me... I tend to consume my science fiction as novel or or graphic novel or a movie or TV show. So seeing this this format is is different, um, and I kind of want a book version. Right, <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Book, like book I kind of that's just that, but that's probably just me thinking about other things like that I've done where I've you know. And by the way, the uh, the usually the movie is not as good as the book, right? right? I didn't think in this case the book would not be as good as the play. Yeah, right. <laughs> It'd be reversed, yeah, right? So I think, I think so. that there would be that as well. Well, and we so. had this great thing. It's, you know, I want to say thank you for that, but the truth is um, Andrea and I came up with these beats and elements that we wanted present in order to explore these themes. And then we gave that to Rick and Christian to say, make this a play, make this a story. Okay, so they really came up with a so, story. All the really, like, all the really good, poignant parts or the parts you laughed at or all that, um, that was theirs. So my wife comes to the, comes to the um, opening with me. Yep. And I'm laughing at the jokes and I'm like, you know, <gasps> at stuff. And she's looking at me and she's like, you're not supposed to, you can't laugh at your own jokes, man. Like, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I didn't write any of that. Yeah. All that good stuff that I'm responding to so honestly is their work, yeah. right? The stuff that's my idea. Yeah, you're right. I actually just sit nervously for it. But when the work uh, that Rick uh, Chafe and Christian Jordan did to do the writing, um, a story and a play are very different. And uh, you earn the emotions uh, on stage very differently than you do on the page. And, you know, without them, we wouldn't have a, there'd be no Red Earth without the, without the playwrights. You know? yeah, it was, yeah, as it much was really as we good. had um, uh, what I would consider good ideas for stories, um, they have to come through the actors. And it's a, a very different medium to write for an actor than it is to write for a comic book panel. Are you programmed to speak? So you're going to Montreal? Yeah, this Saturday I'm uh, on a plane to Montreal. It's the uh, Young Adult um, Literary Festival in Montreal. Um, YA Fest, or if you're American, they tend to call it Yeah Fest. Well, that's what the website makes it look like. The logo yeah. makes it look like Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yes, I will be there. Uh, Portage and Maine, um, who published uh, Will I See with David Alexander Robertson, Esque, and uh, uh, Leslie and I, we... Uh, did that book, and then I worked on this place, a collection of 150 years of Canadian history through the eyes of the uh, colonized rather than the colonizer. Mm -hmm. So we're promoting those books. And then I also have Good Boys uh, coming out through Portage in Maine. So um, I'm in an interesting position, Dan, where I have never been before, where there is a publisher who has a number of my pieces of my back catalog and an interest in promoting my upcoming work, um, getting behind sending me places 
that are not conventions like uh, the way that you know, anyone listening to the podcast knows Justin and I go to these, like, you know, these enormous conventions. Comic conventions. Comic cons. Yeah. This is um, a festival uh, of writers and creators for writers and creators, not only the people who consume it, but rather than, like, you know, you're at your booth and, you know, the people wash back and forth in a great tide of humanity, this is um, uh, the Young Adult Festival is organized as panel discussions. So people come to programming all day. They sit in and they see people talk. Um, about their creative process, about their uh, reasons for making stuff, about how things are done. You know, not unlike this podcast, there'll be a lot of those conversations scheduled for all of Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really exciting to be part of because you get to see how other people do it. Um, so pretty cool. And I get to go to Montreal. Well, that's going to be fun nice. for yeah. sure. Um, and then you're doing FanQuest. You're coming back here and yeah. next month is FanQuest, which yeah. is a, uh, it's cool because we're bringing Claire in uh, from Calgary to uh, kind of launch her book here in Winnipeg. And so it'll be kind of the Winnipeg debut of Gear and C. Yeah, we'll be having exciting. a fan quest and we'll have Claire and you and Justin all in the same building. So we'll, I'm sure we'll have panels and discussions about about adapting uh, the world of Cassie and Tonk or the Silent Guardians. Is it Silent Guardians or Silent Guardian? Z. Z, plural. Okay. Plural. I've, seen it, yeah. I've seen it written both ways. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Silent Guardians um, universe, uh, the first kind of offshoot of that that's not created by you or Justin. Um, I have to check. Okay. Okay. Well, I've seen it both ways. I've seen that's why I ask. But I don't think it's like... Z. Z. Okay. Let's look at the cover of the book. <laughs> we, needed our, we needed our Hidalgo to do our fact checking. Well, that's us. right. Yeah. Um, so that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we also have, I should also mention, for those uh, listening to the podcast who may be interested in pitching a story, oh. we actually have Matt Drudry from At Bay Press. Yeah, and he's been on the podcast. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. He's been on the podcast. He is going to, going to be holding kind of a pitch session where people can come and talk to him about either a novel or a graphic novel that they'd like to, to publish. Yeah, and so, they, just had Curb, they just took Curb Angels to uh, TCAF. Yes, so they did. I'd be interested to ask yeah. them questions about I actually ran into him at KeyCon on yeah. the weekend. I was over, I uh, just popped in there to say hi to whoever was there, and I saw a number of FanQuest vendors, and, and Matt was there as well, so I talked to him for a bit. I had um, dinner with uh, Lee Moyer, who's in for, uh, Lee and Venetia are both in for, were in for KeyCon. Oh, cool. So um, that's where I met him originally, and so we made a, uh, well, I have been abstaining from key cons on political grounds. Right. Um, uh, doesn't mean I don't like the people who show up. So oh, no. I mean, it was them. a great group. And, and uh, the best thing about that is that their public market was free. Like, you don't have to pay admission to get into the marketplace, which is... Uh, so I just popped in there for a few minutes and took a walk around. Um, and Matt was very excited. He says, they've never done anything like this before. So it's like you can bring your kind of an outline and, and story ideas, and they will review your portfolio. They want all, all, just hard copies they can look at at the table. And uh, we're going to find a little quiet area of the That's of great. the building for them to kind of sit down. You can t- discuss story ideas with, with App Bay Press, and they're fully willing to publish it. If they can find something they like and they can work with you, they will publish. Uh, I'm going to bring a pitch to Matt. <laughs> That's right. There we go. That sounds good. Um, so that we have that happening. Uh, Claire is going to be there. And, of course, we have our actor guest I want to promote again because I'm so excited about it. I started rewatching Dirk Gently uh, just, just in preparation. So Mpo Kuaho, who's uh, Ken in Dirk Gently, and he's also did a short run on The Expanse. And he's been in a bunch of stuff. He's so such a good uh, actor, and he seems like a really nice guy. So I'm looking forward to meeting him. And he's coming in from Toronto well, as well. And- uh, interested. I'm interested now to have, uh, like the last time we did FanQuest, I went out with all of your guests also for dinner. We had a great talks about like the movie industry. Yes. And uh, 
I'm now interested to compare because a lot of them do theater and do that kind of yeah. stuff. I have some some burning questions about there. I want to come with you guys versus... this time. Yeah, <laughs> I you go... should have. Yeah. That's yeah. A, my goal this year is to stop worrying so much about the event and have some fun so that's my goal is to go out whenever you guys are going out i'll i'll tag along and hang out because i really want to and dan you can set your guilt aside we were you know your event lasted how many hours like of your weekend there like 40 some hours well it's yeah of that we spent two hours at dinner and the rest of it we were all working hard too you can take two hours well i know i can that's right and so that's what i'm I'm looking forward i know Take two hours. I, I, well, especially since this is going to happen after the con's closed, right? So uh, Saturday night after the, the, All we the shut down. All the damage is done by then. Yeah, right. We, we won't, uh, but it'll be nice to kind of go out and relax and, and get to know some of these people. So it's going to be a lot of fun. We're doing a tight 45, as I say. <laughs> so uh, we, can't, uh, we can't continue. Oh, my God. I have so much I want to talk about. But you're right. We have, to, um, we have to cut it short, dear listeners, because we both have lots to do today. Um, we'll be back next week. That's true. And um, I don't want to jump the shark, but I, uh, we have been lining up some guests for the next little while. Justin and I have both been very busy doing stuff, but now we have some, uh, some time to organize some other folks and voices for the podcast. So Sounds good. Stay tuned for that. This has been Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. And uh, we have lots more to talk about, but we're on a tight 45. Join the fight and make comments. Mm-hmm.